Hello, my friends, and welcome to another brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles, for all of us who are looking for faith and spirituality beyond the fences and walls of institutional Christianity. We've got a great episode for you today, but before we get into it, I would just like to remind you, as always, that you can find all of our content over at our website, accidentaltomatoes.com. You can go there to find every episode of the podcast and also a variety of blog posts on issues regarding faith and justice and liberation. Accidental Tomatoes is the official content site for New Wineskins, a non-traditional, liberation-oriented online faith community rooted in deep, authentic conversation. New Wineskins is a member of the Reconciling Ministries Network and is open to anyone seeking to explore faith and spirituality on a deeper level. If you're looking for a community where you can express your deepest doubts, ask your hardest questions, and be welcomed unconditionally, feel free to visit one of our weekly Zoom gatherings. Learn more by visiting newwineskinsnetwork.org. So for our final episode of season three of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast, Jenny Williams from our content team and I sat down with Natalie Schaefer to talk about the decolonization of music education and why it's an important part of broader intersectional justice movements. Natalie had so much wisdom, it was hard to get it all into one episode, but I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation. So please give a warm Accidental Tomatoes welcome to Natalie Schaefer. Um, I'm also not a fan of people that are experiencing homelessness or talking openly about addiction being kind of treated like charity cases or... um I don't know, like handled with that inauthenticity of conversation. I don't like that. And I didn't want them to experience that, especially with what a lot of them had shared with me about their experiences with church and organized religion. Well, hello there, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. And oh, we've got a good one for you today. I'm so happy that Jenny Williams is joining me in, I don't know, what I, I kind of hesitate to call you the co-host because this is kind of your interview to lead. So maybe you're maybe you're the host and I'm the co-host or maybe titles are really just, <laughs> you know, man-made constructs that don't really matter. Um, there you <laughs> go. But yeah, so we've got a great guest uh, today. Jenny, I'm going to kind of let you sort of take over, uh, tell the folks about our guest and, um, and then we will dive into what I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited for this interview. I think we're going to learn a lot of really cool stuff today. So. Yeah, take it away, Jenny. Thanks, Joe. Um, for those who don't know me, my pronouns are she and her, and I'm a pastor. And today I get to introduce you to my very dear friend, uh, Natalie Schaefer, whose pronouns are also she and her. Um, Natalie and I have worked together for a number of years, and I'm so excited to have her here today for you to get to hear uh, the kinds kinds of things that she works on. Um, she's a choral conductor and a musicologist. She's originally from Fairmont, West Virginia. So our West Virginia listeners know where she's from. She um, grew up attending church with her family, um, originally a non-denominational church, and then later uh, United Methodist. And she learned hymns while swinging on the back porch with her granny. Nice. Uh, she's very involved in um, 4-H, yeah, a graduate of East Fairmont High and is an alum of West Virginia Wesleyan College. Um, graduated two, two, sorry, 2006 with a bachelor's in music ed. Um, while she was there, she did a number of things. Natalie never just does one thing. Um, she's done a number <laughs> of things. She started the uh, Queer Straight Alliance chapter 
um, which is still active there. And she's taught in public schools. She's waited tables. She's bartended um, and kind of wanted to see what she wanted to pursue in grad school. So her um, formal education and career path was always music focused, but she's also an activist in her own right um, and always was interested in bringing the worlds of music um, and justice or societal matters together. Um, so she has in her um, sort of pocket of academic um, honors and um, cred, she has a master's in musicology um, and she also has a master's in choral conducting. Um, she has connections and ties to the recovery community in the area. So all of these things kind of came together into her her path of justice and music making. And you'll hear her talk a little bit about that. But she's um, currently pursuing a doctorate in conducting. And uh, one of the things that you're going to get to hear about Natalie that's so interesting is her pedagogy and um, working on inclusion in the classroom and decolonizing music ed. Um, one more thing about her is that she, she's worked in several different churches in Virginia and West Virginia. Um, she teaches voice and piano, and she's been an adjunct faculty at like, I don't know, four or five, how many, Natalie? Like <laughs> four, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she just started uh, in a position uh, in Emory, Virginia, at Emory and Henry College. Um, and she's the visitors, visiting assistant professor of choral activities. So, Natalie, we are so glad to have you here Yay. today. Thanks. We're excited yeah. to be here. Yeah. So um, there's so much that we could cover with Natalie, but um, thought I would just start with this question. Um, you have a number of experiences that have led you to where you are and the amazing person that you are and the way that that um, bleeds into your work and informs your work. So. Um, what are some of your early formative experiences that led you to decide to pursue the intersection of social justice and music? So I think um, for a while, I didn't realize that they were connected until I really looked back on my path. They felt like very separate things that I was interested in. Um, but I do have some memories of being in a marching band in high school where um, our director was very gendered about who could play what instruments and mm. um, would often make jokes like if we messed something up or missed a cutoff or something, you know, that's why they don't let women drive. Oh, wait. Yeah, they do uh -huh. now. Um, just things <laughs> like that. So, like, I remember that and I remember thinking, well, that didn't feel great. Um, and I wanted to play the drums and I was assigned female at birth and that apparently was not an acceptable thing so like one of the, one of the first for him uh so one of the first things that I remember doing and being involved with is I got like my parents and the parents of another student who was assigned female at birth that wanted to play drums um to go to the school board meeting and like things got changed um so that wasn't me making the music right that minute but it was all kind of it coalesced later um, I also remember being really sucked into a choral piece that I actually didn't sing in my high school. Sometimes just our tenor basses did songs by themselves and they sang a song called Prayer for the Children. And it's about the Bosnian war victims. And I remember that was one of the first times that choral music really moved me in a different way and made me like leave that rehearsal where I watched them work on it and go research it and read about it because I didn't know um, mm -hmm. anything about it. 
so those were kind of, those were both in high school, but I think that's kind of where the seedling started getting planted. Yeah. So these personal experiences that were just uh, gender and justice and all sorts of things going on and yeah, like things you do. bigger than me, things yeah. bigger than me. Yeah. Yeah. Music has a, has a power um, to really move us in so many ways. So you went on to like fast forward a whole bunch of time and you went on to um, pursue that intersection of justice and um, music making. So I'm going to ask you um, a couple of questions. Can you talk a little bit about your master's thesis or like some of the underpinnings of your master's thesis? And um, particularly because in West Virginia, this where you are in your field is not widely known or supported and um you know you're kind of on the leading edge of some things so can you kind of tell us about those things yeah i think um an important part of that fast forward journey happened at westland um and i don't know how helpful it is but by the time i was at westland i was definitely deconstructing my faith and I was also in the presence of these just social justice like giants, um, people that mar- marched with Dr. King. Dr. John Warner was teaching sociology classes there. That really opened my eyes. I took courses with him. Um, and then at the same time, the music department there, Dr. Larry Parsons would pick these pieces that just, um, I mean, some of them were just simply beautiful, but others were very challenging about the text or about the subject matter, or um, we did things in collaboration with the sociology departments and the English departments at Westland. So I was starting to see like some baby ideas of how things could go together. And then um, when I started working on my master's, I thought I was going to write about American, like violence in American opera. I don't know. Just, like, light, they don't, just a little light Very topic. niche. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Just, you and know, a little easy like reading. So yeah. Yeah. I, like that was the goal, but it wasn't like flowing out of me and I wasn't super inspired by it. I was just like, well, let's get this done, you know, move on to the next thing. And I had the pleasure of going to a national conference for the Choral Directors Association in Minneapolis in 2017. And I met uh, Dr. Christina McMullen. She was at the Ohio State University then. She's now down in Texas, um, UNT, I believe. And wait, she, just going to interrupt you for one second. The Ohio State University, it was like very good of you to get that in there, Natalie. I have to get it in there because <laughs> I had to type it a million times. And anytime I missed it, it was corrected for me. So, <laughs> uh, yes, the Ohio State. Um, and she, she was part of a presentation. There were other people in it too. They were great too. I don't remember their names, but she was doing social justice in her community in a way that was not like her swooping in and solving the problem. Like her goal was to bring awareness and offer connection and foster relationship building in her community. She, when she moved to the area, um, she just kind of spent a little bit of time getting to know people and saw that the one of the biggest issues in Columbus was human trafficking because of the positioning of interstates, um, the international airports, just the way things work and how quickly you could get far away with someone. Um, and so she designed this weekend to provide 
a platform for the voices of people that were survivors or still currently being trafficked that weren't ready to leave. Um, she designed it in a way that there was a choral concert kind of, a, that was the main focus, but there were all these other things to bring in the community to help them know what signs or signs that traffickers would put up like certain verbiage um, to introduce them to a center there for people who were still being trafficked or that had left. Um, and they offered music therapy, art therapy, meals for lunch every day, just a space for these women and men to be. Um, and brought in judges to speak that are part of not just having this pipeline of people being, you know, termed prostitutes and put into jail. And her concert was every piece exemplified one chapter out of a book written by a survivor. She brought the survivor in to talk and do a question and answer. It was staged very theatrically. It was, there's no way you could have attended it and not be drawn in. Um, and I was just overwhelmed by the links that she went to, to involve the community to not come in and say, oh, this is, we're going to raise money for one thing. And like, that'll, that'll solve the problem. That was not it. It was a very holistic, well-rounded approach to this is an issue in our community. The choral music making in that case was not being made by the community members. It was being made by her collegiate choir members. Um, and so I ended up doing that became what I wanted to write my thesis about. So I don't know how much everyone knows about academic timelines, but February of the year that you're supposed to graduate is not the time to completely <laughs> change your entire thesis focus. And I had wonderful mentors at WVU that supported me and helped me do that. Um, and I found, I thought I would go there and find a bunch of choir members who are now like madly into social justice after this moving um, thing. And what I found instead were people who went out into the community, got jobs, have the awareness, share it with their family, share it with the people closest to them, you know, perhaps suggest if their business is looking for a nonprofit to support, maybe they suggest that domestic center, you know, like it was just such an attainable result. And I was really moved by that. And I was moved by what stuck out to the performers, what their strong memories were. And I was moved by the people in the community that spoke to me about what their takeaway from the event was or how they feel like they were knowledgeable enough to speak to it when they heard people making jokes about, you know, prostitutes or making really snide comments, you know, just furthering that existing narrative that's out there. These people had the confidence to challenge that just in their circles. And I was like, that, that's it. That's what I want to do. So it shifted my focus. It for the first time brought into alignment that the social justice activist part of me that's been there since I was like, you know, a little kid who had a friend who was mixed race and got picked on. And I pushed the boy that picked on her off a swing one day in elementary school. Like, <laughs> but that part of me together with this music part of me that I felt was very separate up until that point. Statute and of limitations has expired on that, by the way. So yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. He can't see me now. So it's totally fine. Um, <laughs> yeah. So as far as what it looks like in West Virginia, because it is a new thing, right? Um, I am part of the ACDA board, the conducting board in West Virginia, and they created a position for me, a social justice chair that was Self not what ACDA is. Oh, sure. American Choral Directors Association. 
Cool. And it's the West Virginia chapter. And ACDA was actually founded by a West Virginian who went to the same high school as me, Dr. Tim Sharp. We didn't know each other, but hey. Um, So they created a social justice position. And ACDA as a whole, as a national organization, does have a social justice chair, is doing a lot of inclusive work, doing some really amazing funding of composers that are working in this in this focused area. And anyway, so I'm the social justice chair for West Virginia. And sometimes that looks like um, providing all of my colleagues with some questions before the school year starts that invite them to kind of look at ways to decenter themselves in the classroom or in the choral rehearsal that can be quite uncomfortable um, for a choir director has to, you know, tell everybody in the room what to do. But do you and are you the only person in the room with knowledge and worth and whose opinion is valid? Probably not. That's a challenging concept for many people who have always been in, you know, the traditional um, approach to a choral directing role. So I've done things like that. Um, I've brought in Kirsten Steiner, who just finished her doctorate in Texas, and she's kind of leading the movement on decolonizing the choral classroom. She's brilliant. Um, We brought her in to do a Zoom and kind of lead some discussion with the results of those questions. I provide links to composers and pieces that specifically address social justice issues. I highlight groups in West Virginia that are choirs that are outside of schools that are social justice focus groups, like groups for women who are survivors of domestic violence and have formed a choir. Um, Voices of Hope, which I figure we'll talk about later, has been featured there. Um, And I also traveled around the state doing some trans and gender non-conforming, inclusive, like best practices in the choral classroom, just because a lot of people are scared of getting it wrong, so they just don't address it at all. And I get that, but I think we can also push ourselves to do better than that. And sometimes just giving them a safe space to ask questions without people jumping down their throats um, is really helpful and a place to ask questions about, well, why, you know, why is gendered language maybe not a best practice? I don't really understand the concept, so I can't even engage with it. And so being able to travel around and do that um, just provide some additional resources is kind of what it looks like right now in West Virginia. Wow. Amazing. I I knew you were a badass, but I had no idea. (laughs) 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 Um, I'm I'm just so fascinated by one of the kind of on and off threads we followed in the three seasons of this podcast that we've had is there, you know, all of those places where art and justice work intersect. Right. And, and certainly that, you know, part of the story you're telling is part of that, um, continuum, I guess, maybe for lack of a better term, but the, there's an additional depth to what you're describing that I think goes beyond just the way performances, you know, per se can um, evoke, you know, some social justice, um, emotional responses, or, you know, hopefully physical responses with folks. Um, But, but to take it to the level of education is man, you're you're really unpeeling the onion there, right? You're you're getting to the depth uh, of that. So, um, I, there is a question <laughs> baked in the midst of all that. Um, how how do you think your own kind of deconstruction reconstruction journey? You kind of mentioned that earlier with your in your undergrad years, kind of getting started there. Um, how how has how has that journey 
informed this depth of work that you're doing um, in this kind of intersection between art and justice? So what I came to with deconstructing, eventually reconstructing, and now I don't really know what no, I'm nobody at knows now. what to call. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> so the reconstruction was largely inspired. Like I was grappling for a long time. I was trying to put the pieces together. I was reading literature from lots of different religions. Um, my grandmother was Native American. Um, and so I was reading like that kind of stuff, just trying to put my finger on it. And actually, I was in a relationship with someone that came to call themselves an addict. And I was introduced to a 12-step program called Al-Anon, which is for the friends and family members of people who uh, have issues with alcohol. There's also an Al-Anon. There just wasn't one in our area. So I went to that. That kind of inspired me you know like because i i wasn't ready to come back to like a christian god that whole setup mm. but i thought that what i heard christians speaking about and reading about and studying those like strings that connect all the major religions and not even i mean even people that are atheists that are lovely people so like the strings of humanity that are being discussed as the pillars of what is being a good human were the same. And so I loved that. I It just invited me to, to go explore. And something you hear in the rooms often is take what you like and leave mm. the rest. And that had never been something that I thought was an option when it came to spirituality. So kind of being able to reconstruct what's important to me, why do I value these things, right? As I'm coming to my own working definition of justice, because I had to, because I'm going to write about it extensively. Um, and I ended up centering in on this music ed um, theorist. Her name is Estelle Gorgensen, and she talks about justice being, I want to get it right, emphasizing the worth and dignity and preciousness of human beings, anything that does that. And I'm like, well, that is what I hear in all of these different religions I'm, you know, dipping into. And it's also what I hear at the core of all of these movements, like Black Lives Matter movements, you know, women supporting women getting out of domestic violence situations, the work that these human traffic like activists were doing. It's all the same. They're all trying to draw attention to the dignity mm. and worth and honor the preciousness. That I word is the one that, that always really. Yeah. And um, so then it just kind of became clear, like, I don't have to have a label for this, just like I don't have to have a label for what kind of activist I am. And I don't have to have a label for like what kind of justice I'm accomplishing because it's different with every group. It's different depend like, yes, it's nice to have the warm, fuzzy feelings of you heard a song about, I don't know, like we'll say warrior, which is about women supporting women and ending violence against women. That's a lovely feeling. It's much different than bringing a group together and letting them redefine like a sense of self, a sense of community um, through choral music together. Like there, all those other layers come when you can get past just the surface value of, oh, this is about a social justice issue. It sure it is. But for the people in the audience and the people in the group, it's also asking a lot of things, um, you know, fostering like connection in places that you might not expect it or, 
giving people a chance to, it's like restorative justice sometimes, right? Maybe they're a leader in the section in their choir and they feel good about that. And that's a restorative action for them to gain back some self-worth. Like it's just, justice is so multifaceted and it can work in so many ways in the choir setting also. I think that kind of answers the idea. You know, I really saw that in a number of ways. So um, at the church I most recently served, Natalie was the director of music ministry. And um, one of the sort of uh, like legendary stories about Natalie was her hiring process. So um, we had a group of people from essentially the personnel committee of the church and I were interviewing a number of candidates and we had asked the candidates to bring a piece of music uh, with them that meant something to them and then perform it because we were looking for someone who both played the piano and could direct a choir and a handbell choir, uh, perform it and then tell us why they brought it, what was important to them about it. Well, Natalie was just like, yeah, I didn't do that. (laughs) And uh, so she got uh, three or four of us uh, together around a piano and was like, we're going to make music together. This is what we're going to do in the interview. I'm not going to perform for you. Uh, first of all, I, I don't really, I get stressed out playing the piano <laughs> and um, and she does just fine. But, um, but had this interview team singing as a part of her interview. And I think that really reflects, you know, Natalie, what you were just talking about, that the process of music making is um, profound. And um, so when you are, looking at some sort of matter of justice, when that's woven into how you make the music, um, how you form a community that makes the music, it's uh, what kind of music is selected, not just for the text or the content, but what's the context of the composer of this music or the situation into which they were writing. And so, you know, Natalie, just uh, like you're pointing to, Joe, just has this really holistic way about music making. Natalie, can you talk a little bit about those terms, musicking and music making? Sure. So musicking, I came across the term, it's from a music ed uh, writer. His name is Christopher Smalls, so I can't take credit for it. Um, But it's an awesome, it's an awesome thought and it ties into what is now being talked about as decentering and decolonizing. So in traditional music ed classrooms, you're focused or music making experiences, you're focused on the product, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm focused on a good concert, you're focused on this or that. And I'm, it's not that I don't have expectations for my groups. I do. I do expect them to sing well, sure. But that is not the end goal for me or for people that practice musicking. So musicking is about the entire rehearsal process. It also involves like the audience, like how how they enjoy it. Like it's every part about it. It's a a choir person calling another choir person to get a ride to rehearsal. Um, It's not, it's, it's focused on the journey instead of the end product. And because of that, then it leads right into this discussion of decolonization of like, why do we term this a good choral sound? Is it because it's what happened in the Anglican church and in all these colony countries that became colonizing countries and furthered this Western sound. Like, is it not okay for us to sing a bluegrass song that really sounds like bluegrass and doesn't have quote unquote good choral technique? Because again, who's defining what's good? 
what's it based on? What systems was it upholding that helped come to those definitions? Like, it just gives you space to get into all of that. So I love musicking. It's that term's been around for a while, but it kind of had a resurgence now that decolonizing is also becoming a talking point. So it's the whole thing. And Voices of Hope is an, a, an experiment in that. It was my first real experiment in that process. Yeah. So tell folks about that. Um, I was asked to help out forming a choir with a free clinic in Morgantown called Health Right. And they thought there used to be a choir. And then we found out after like a year of doing this, there never was. It was <laughs> someone was just confused. There never used to be a choir for the homeless population there. Um, so that's how it was introduced to me. They'd like a choir or a place that people could come and sing that are experiencing homelessness. So that's how it started. And we started it at Red Door Trinity Church at the top of High Street. They offer lunch to anyone who's hungry every day of the week, like Monday through Friday. So we met um, on Fridays right before the community kitchen opened for an hour. So people could come sing, hang out, and then be there when it was time for food. And quickly, as I got to know them, uh, it became really evident that, one, a lot of them did not want to rehearse in the church. They came, uh, but they weren't super comfortable. Two, as I listened to their stories, addiction was at the heart of like all of them in one way or another, whether it was their own journey or their parents or their daughter, whatever the case may be. Um, so we kind of shifted and and we're still, I guess, known as a homeless choir, but it's more so we started calling ourselves a community recovery choir. So there are members with mental health issues, there are members with significant addiction issues. Um, and then also because my whole, my thinking is collaborative social justice is where it's at, right? If you can uphold and spotlight the voices of the people being impacted, that's great. But you need people in positions of power to provide the platforms to do that, mm. that don't overstep. And the people at Health Right are brilliant about that. So not only are there people in our choir that are actively without homes, there are also people in the choir that have houses now. There are people in the choir that are using. There are people in the choir that are clean. There's a business manager from HealthRight. There's the executive director of the Friendship House, which is affiliated with HealthRight, um, and where we ultimately moved our rehearsals to. There are peer recovery specialists singing with us. There are social work students from WVU who are there interning singing with us. And it's this structure where everyone comes in and then everyone's equal. It doesn't matter that you're the business director. You're not singing the right note. <laughs> We're going to work on it. You know, and that is so like pitchy. humanizing and leveling. It's just, just a little, I think we're doing the scream thing instead of the yelling or instead of the singing because we're a little excited. So, you know, and that's brilliant for everybody else's worth in the room, right? So it became this place that we would get a ton of invitations to go perform but that's not what we're about. We're about seeing everybody. It ended up being Tuesday mornings. We'd eat breakfast beforehand together. We'd rehearse for an hour. Um, sometimes I'd have friends come in and play guitar or drums or something, and they would like stay and give lessons to people that wanted to do that. Like it just became a rehearsal based group. And I also realized I was not in charge. I was simply facilitating. Right. And that is where I really started looking at what I do in the classroom. And in the choral rehearsal, like, how can I not always be the one in charge? Because my experience of what is happening is not the only valid one. 
And I certainly can't continue to learn and grow if I'm never taking on anyone else's feelings or opinions or ideas. Mm. So that's Voices of Hope in a nutshell. (laughs) And you've talked about Voices of Hope before um, in terms of dignity and purpose and meaning, uh, particularly for the unhoused folks that were in that. So can you can you kind of talk about that as a component of it, too? Yeah, I. There are so many things that we've done. Um, like we've invited in city council people and delegate Daniel Walker and to see the friendship house, to see what happens there and also to see us rehearse or come sing with us. And the fact that these people came was important to the members of the group. Um, we've sang at the black bears, like the local minor league baseball team. They have a holiday all families are welcome type deal they put on every December and they invite us to come sing carols and watching these young families like with little kids, let their children come over and pet the dogs of some of our members that I know if they saw them on high street with their dog, there would probably be a lot of apprehension to let their children go interact and the freedom of like, just they were, they were fine with it. They were, so excited and the the homeless individuals were thrilled to say oh yeah this is my dog lucy and you know i got her this little bow to wear for the christmas thing and just to see them being treated as humans Mm. being you Mm. know their preciousness honored and then also watching how fast the group comes together to support one another our very first one of those christmas things we did we had a new member who'd only been at one rehearsal with us he's in one of the sober living houses in morgantown he'd been trying to get a hold of his ex to bring his daughter so he could see her and she wouldn't give him an answer you know yes or no and when you're the early in recovery, everything seems so big and it's so emotional. And he was really tore up about this. And right about the time we were supposed to leave, his ex came with his daughter, all dressed up in Christmas stuff to see her dad saying, I'll probably get, <laughs> I'll get teary. But everyone in the group like stopped what they were doing to take pictures of oh, him wow. interacting with his daughter. And they barely knew him, yeah. you know, but they knew his story and they knew his journey because they had parts of it too so just to watch them like be able to honor each other so quickly it's inspiring i I love how so organically and so holistically what you did with um voices of hope creates this community right and and that the the dignity and the preciousness of the people who are involved in it isn't contingent on them getting fixed, so to speak, right? That, which I, I don't really like that word, but I'm not really sure what else to use there. But it's it's not contingent on, you know, their sobriety or, you know, finding, you know, stable housing. Or it's, it's mm-hmm. it, it, it is allowing them to be exactly who they are, exactly where they are, and to still experience the full dignity of humanity in circumstances that most of us would say would rob you of that dignity. Right. Does that, does that kind of make sense? Yeah, that's really it. Shifting that idea that for them to be worthy, they need to look like what I might, or you might, or someone else thinks is appropriate or, you know, acceptable or right, moralistically right. 
we had a ton of members that lived at the um, homeless encampment that was in Morgantown for most of the summer a couple years ago, and they weren't interested in being housed. And that was really a difficult like thought process for people to understand. Like it's hot outside and it's, you know, Morgantown, it's buggy. Like, what do you mean you don't want to be housed? They don't want to be housed. They wanted to be there in community, um, you know, and, and they'd show up for like when Morgantown bought these benches that are, have a big hump in the middle. So nobody will lay on them and sleep on them. And it had been a point of contention at multiple meetings. We were going to go to that, the next meeting on it and sing. And we all kind of met that day and they were just, some of them were exhausted and it helped. It just taught me more things. One of them said, you know, I, we appreciate how much you care about us and that you want to do this, but I'm just exhausted from surviving today. Like, I don't, I can't go do that meeting tonight. And thinking I was going to be pissed that they said that, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, right. Because my tired today is much different from your tired today and emotionally. Yeah. Okay. So we're not going to go. Like we made a decision as a group. We're not going to go. So the collective is where the focus is, not the desires of the director. Yeah. Natalie's like fantastic at creating community, facilitating community, connecting people. If you're a friend of Natalie, you're going to end up being a friend of some of her (laughs) friends that that you don't know yet. Like that's just how she rolls. Um, And I think what you've been talking about um, with that community and Voices of Hope and your being a connector also touches on something I was hoping we would cover, which was uh, how that connection then was fostered between the church that we worked at and Voices of Hope, um, which is just sort of a further example of how you are and what you do and how that grows out of your approach to music making. So could you talk a little bit about that connection? Yeah, I was very um, mother hen-ish about it for a while. Like I don't, I didn't know the people at that church yet super well. And I already had Voices of Hope established. I knew them. Um, and I am not a fan of people like taking pictures of the work that they're doing in a way of saying, look how good we are. Look how, you know, um, I'm also not a fan of people that are experiencing homelessness or talking openly about addiction being kind of treated like charity cases or um I don't know, like handled with that inauthenticity of conversation. I, I don't like that. And I didn't want them to experience that, especially with what a lot of them had shared with me about their experiences with church and organized religion. Have that, like, I'm sorry, um, no, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it just occurs to me that like there's that inspiration porn kind of aspect to that yes. right mm-hmm. so, yeah yeah like white savior inspiration porn poverty porn like all of that i just really wanted to not bring them into a situation where that would happen in any way so the people at that church were so willing to engage differently to say okay well what how could we be of service and i'm like that is it that's the question um, so I asked them and, you know, they didn't have, they have a warm lunch every day, but they don't always have a warm breakfast. So that's one of the things people at the church would sign up to drop off breakfast on those Tuesdays when we did rehearsal. And I was like, you know, I'd really like for whoever brings it to stay and sit and eat with us. Like, it's not, again, getting rid of that. I'm bringing the food, you know, like that hierarchical feeling like, yeah, I'm bringing the food, but I'm going to sit and eat the food with you. It's like good, wholesome food. Like, you know, it's not a cold granola bar and a 
brownie or something. Like it's something of substance. And then they also would ask like, what would you all like to eat? Or what do you want us to bring that you can keep for later in the day? Um, And then they wanted to, we have a knitting and crochet ministry at that church and they wanted to do something. And I was like, well, let me see what will be helpful. And largely members of my choir said, you know, our stuff gets thrown away quite frequently. Um, but also it's hard to like carry things on you all the time that are heavy. But we decided that what would be helpful is our blankets made out of yarn that is semi-water resistant. Um, and we had only thought of the blankets. The person in charge of the knitting ministry, her name is Bonnie. She's amazing. She's the one that thought, oh, I know there's this yarn that's basically water resistant. We'll get that. And it's lightweight. And then we made sure it was wrapped in like a plastic bag. And it was the kind of yarn that you could really squish down. So it'd be really small. They could just shove it in their bag. And then later that night when they needed a blanket, it would quickly just become a full-size blanket and not heavy. So that whole experience of like watching them solve problems by actually taking into consideration what the folks at Friendship House were saying was like, I feel like that's the goal to try to do the work, but not be in the way and like not impose what I think will fix it. And they just rose to the occasion to do that. That's excellent. That's excellent. Well, we're starting to get kind of close to the end of our time. Jenny, I don't know. Did you have any other questions for Natalie or Natalie? Did did we miss anything that you wanted to cover here? Oh yeah. Like I could go a whole other episode. So I'll just shut up and let Natalie (laughs) tag on whatever she We do repeat guests a lot here on accidental. (laughs) I'm here for it. We didn't even get to get into considering Matthew Shepard or what's happening now, but um, I spent a little bit of time reflecting for this about So being a church music director that isn't necessarily Christian anymore, um, you know, like how that worked in in a way that was authentic and true for me and um, kind of what I was talking about before, those themes that stick out, like I love light. So we would do all this focus on light and how many religions talk about light and, you know, like, so it was so, I don't want to say easy, but it, it it was very doable to help this group of people who all identify as being Christian, whether they're in some phase of deconstruction, reconstruction, whatever. Um, But to help them on their spiritual journey and worship by picking out these pieces that exemplify themes or um, I loved working with Jenny because she could just give me a couple words and I could find like hymns and anthems that would just expound upon these ideas often related to justice. We did so many justice like focus things throughout the years and, um, you know, finding like during Advent one year, we were really, it was right before COVID we messed up. We went real hard on the darkness and the difficulty of life (laughs) um, setting up like for this happiness of light and all of that. And then right after that was COVID. Um, But we did a handbell piece that was written for the survivors of the Pulse nightclub. Mm. And I know that in many spaces, that would not have been a welcome piece. And at that church, 100% welcome. I felt really good about it. Like, it was easy to find things and not have to, like, hide parts of myself. And that was lovely, really lovely, and helped me continue to grow spiritually while I was there, too. So it it was a great Great journey. I don't want to say the end of my church music directing journey, but I've, 
it's kind of been the end so far. I haven't taken a new position <laughs> yet. So it's, it was oh. great. Well, since you mentioned it, and I yeah. want to hear about it, um, tell us about considering Matthew Shepard, if you could, please. Sure. So it was, it's the focus of my doctoral dissertation. Um, WVU choirs put on considering Matthew Shepard, the posters on my wall. I just glanced up at it. Uh, it is a piece kind of like an oratorio. So kind of like Messiah or those things that are older and we know is telling a very specific story through music. Um, it's a story about Matthew Shepard and it uses a lot of poetry, um, and tells the story through the eyes of objects, like the fence, the fence the week before, the fence the night of, the fence a week after, things like that. Um, Natalie, I'm sorry. I'm just going to pause you in case there's anybody listening who doesn't know who Matthew Shepard is oh. or what that story. Could you quickly define that? Yes. Um, Matthew Shepard was a gay college student, about 21 years old, um, out in Wyoming, Laramie, Wyoming. And he was a member of the LGBTQ club on campus there. He went out after a meeting of that club one evening and ended up encountering two gentlemen at a local bar who eventually took him out into a field and beat him and left him tied to the fence. And he was beaten so badly that he was mistaken for a scarecrow the next morning when a jogger passed by and called a cop to come check on him. So Matthew ultimately passed away about six days later and his family um, founded the Matthew Shepard Foundation, which has been a light. And he, his story and their advocacy also brought about our federal hate crime legislation. It took about 11 years to get it there. Um, is They hope to highlight his joy, his love of life, his acceptance of himself at a time when early 90s, that really wasn't a thing. Um, as much as it is now, and continue to work moving forward for the advocacy of all people's dignity. So, thank you. Um, this does it doesn't the considering Matthew Shepard piece also has like readings from his father, writings from his mother. The composer was very much involved with the family. It's not like a his take on it. It is very much the reality of how that went. Preparing to engage in something like that with a choir who is largely, almost every member of it is queer, um, was going to be an undertaking. A lot, only maybe three of them knew Matthew Shepard, knew the story, knew anything about it before we started. So I got to practice like the whole idea of um, social and emotional learning. As we went through that process, we would often stop and have circles where we're all literally sitting on the same level discussing like what feelings are coming up. What are we learning that we didn't know? There's a movement where the choir is the Westboro Baptist Church, and they are chanting things that were written on the signs, um, including the F slur and things. And, you know, just being prepared for that, being able to process that. Um, so I was kind of in charge of that part of the rehearsal process throughout. And then I decided what I would like to do since social justice coming together, doing the things in your community. We had a big community mixer for about an hour before the show. And I invited 20 organizations, things like the ACLU, gender affirming therapists, gender, um, well, all kinds of affirming clergy like Jenny was there and Zach Morton, who I think has mm -hmm. been on yeah. here before. Um, we had the LGBTQ Center at WVU. We had people getting registered to vote. We had politicians there. We had 
you know, just anyone that I thought in some way is supportive of the queer community. Uh, we also had queer performances happening in the lobby. Musicians, poets, queer artists had their work up for sale. Um, and then there were also rooms like private rooms. If you wanted to speak to the clergy members there or some of the therapists that were there, you could go and do that. If the performance brought up something you wanted to chat with someone about, there was space for that. Um, and so that example of bring the community together so they can network also so the students and people involved see what resources are available for them while throughout the process doing as best you can to provide like a safe processing journey. <laughs> I don't know the right word right now, but um, it was it was a lot. And it was also semi-staged. So taking on ideas as these students are learning the story, like they're learning about the group that made the big angel wings to stand in front of the protester. And one of the students is like, my dad and I will make those. Can we do that? Can we use those? Like that level of involvement in really difficult subject matter it was a lot. And I'm so, I'm so grateful for the whole process. And so I'm kind of reflecting on that because it's a much different application of these ideas than Voices of Hope, which is kind of what my master's right. thesis was about. This is more about a different way to approach community social justice. This is, it's all brilliant and beautiful. And I love every word you just said. <laughs> so, so good. So good. So Natalie, if, um, if folks, you know, want to reach out to you, if they want more information on the work you're doing, um, how, how can folks find you, get a hold of you? Um, what's the best way to get in contact? Probably my new fancy email here at Emory and Henry College. It is N.N. Schaefer, S-H-A-F-F-E-R, at E-H-C dot E-D-U. Um, if you email me there, when I respond to you, you'll have my cell phone and all the other information in my signature. and um, if you want to read more about opioid aesthetics in West Virginia and where it intersects, well, in Appalachia and where it intersects with the arts, there's a great book edited by Travis Steimling. There's a chapter on Voices of Hope in it, and it's called Opioid Aesthetics in a Time of Change. Um, that and Natalie I know huh? that you are the author of. I wrote one chapter of it, yes. <laughs> yes. The last chapter, actually. Um, and I do know if you stay tuned next semester in the spring here at Emory and Henry, we'll be welcoming Beth Macy as an artist in residence all semester. She wrote Dope Sick. Um, so she'll be doing stuff with the addictions counseling people. We're going to do some collaborative social justice choral work with her um, and the recovery community here. So check in and I can let you know what's going on. Fantastic. Fantastic. Anything else, Jenny? No, I'm just so grateful to my friend, Natalie, for yeah. being here. And as I always say, she's just made me a better person and helped me on a journey of allyship and um, working in the intersection of justice and faith. And um, so thanks so much for your time today, Natalie. Thanks. Thanks yeah, for inviting thanks. me. That was such a fascinating conversation with Natalie. I just, if the people could see the Zoom screen, the way my mouth was just hanging open <laughs> in complete and utter awe and admiration for just, she's doing such amazing work, you know? She's such a fantastic human. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you're getting ready just to let folks know, maybe a little bit of a teaser. Um, one of the reasons that we invited Natalie on, uh, to be on the podcast, um, was that, that you guys are kind of conspiring among some other people, um, for, for kind of a new thing that's coming up here. Um, so you want to, you want to give people a little like glimpse behind the curtain there? Yeah, I'll just uh, give a little snippet. So Natalie and I are part of a team that's launching something called Justice and Jubilee. And that's going to launch on the 23rd of October. For those of you who are listening to this as it drops, that's pretty soon. Uh, Justice and Jubilee is a lot of things. uh, But one of the things that it is, is it will bring uh, justice oriented content that's rooted in progressive Christianity, um, born in Appalachia, Uh, We will have a little bit of music and a message each Sunday night that shows synchronously on Facebook at 5 p.m. Eastern. Um, We'll hopefully have all of our tech ducks in a row, and it will also be available asynchronously on YouTube. Uh, But that's just something that you can come to that if you are a person who's deconstructing, reconstructing um, part of a church and intend to keep being part of that church, but just want to make sure that you're hearing the fullness of the gospel and the call of the prophets to denounce injustice and uh, work for justice and liberation in the world. That's a a new effort that we're part of. Very cool. And you've already got social media presence. Yeah, we've got our social media up and running. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Um, We're technically justice and like the ampersand sign Jubilee uh, that should come up. But if you search some combination of justice underscore Jubilee or Jubilee underscore justice, you should find (laughs) us on those platforms. So yeah. Very cool. It's it's so exciting. Um, and I, I've I've been lucky enough to have kind of a front row seat to the development of this thing. And it's so exciting that you're finally getting to launch it with with brilliant people like Natalie um being part <laughs> I thought of you were that. gonna say brilliant people like Joe, because Joe's part of the team too. <laughs> brilliant people like myself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um and you know we'll talk um so this is by the way, this is the last episode of season three of accidental tomatoes, which it feels hard to believe that we've been doing this for three years already. Um, but our next episode, the, the, the premier episode of season four, we're going to have, you know, our whole accidental tomatoes content team. Um, Jenny and I and, and Brad Davis and Heather Moore are going to be together. And, and so Jenny will have a chance to talk a little bit more about justice and Jubilee then after it's up and running and we'll get to hear what everybody else on the team is up to. So yeah, it's, it's exciting times here at the, uh, the dispersed accidental tomatoes headquarters, (laughs) the tomato diaspora. Yeah. 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 Well, friends, as always, if you have any comments or feedback on this episode or suggestions for future episodes, um, feel free to reach out to us on our social media channels. Just do a search for accidental tomatoes. Um, and you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, uh, and leave us a note there, or you can send us an email to accidental tomatoes at gmail.com. And so until next time, friends, keep on growing outside the fences and join us for another brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.